could you open up to the book of 1 John chapter 4? Last week we began this series and we began saying that this is in reference to our vision or mission statement which is daring enough to believe God and obedient enough to share. And uh, last week we said what we really want to focus on is that we're daring to be the kind of person that is daring and risky and willing to step out for the cause of Christ. And so the series this week Focusing on daring is going to be called becoming a person of risk or a person of risk using R-I-S-K as an acronym for four series. Last week we talked about R. Does anybody remember what R stands for? Excellent, Tabitha. Remember what? Remember who you are. You weren't looking at your notes, were you? All right, so R stands for remember who you are. So that means wherever you go, you are somebody. You are to take on a role. Who are you, according to last week? Does anybody remember what I said? Scripture clearly says we are. What are we? What's that? Ambassadors for Christ. People of dignity, royalty, and honor. That God has given us a responsibility to carry his name to call people to peace, reconciliation with him. So remember who you are. That's the key thing. So whenever you walk into a situation, whether it's a community, whether it's a school or work, you are Christ's representative. That's what R stands for. That's huge. And remember, our objective is to make this just clear and simple. So R stands for remember who you are. Now the second week, I want to begin in a very unusual place. I want to begin at uh, a science science perspective, let's talk physics for a second. You're probably like, what does physics have to do with anything? Absolutely nothing, but absolutely everything. You probably heard of Sir Isaac Newton and his first law of motion. Sir Isaac Newton's first law of motion says this. An object at rest always stays at rest, or is at rest. And an object in motion stays in motion. An object in rest stays at rest, and an object in motion stays in motion. Probably, what does this have to do with anything? You will see. And you understand this better than you know. And you live like this all the time. Imagine it's Saturday afternoon. The grass needs to be cut, but I'm sitting on the couch. And I'm quite comfortable when I sit on my couch. It's a very comfortable couch. The hardest part of cutting the grass is not pushing the lawnmower up and down the lawn. It's getting off the couch. That is the single most difficult part for me to cut the grass, and I think for you. Why? Because an object at rest tends to stay at rest, like my bottom on the couch. I do not want to move. This is physically true, but this is also spiritually true as well in more ways than you can imagine. I am lazy. Normally in my flesh, I don't want to make an effort to reach out to others, to engage, to care. Why? Because an object at rest stays at rest. And so I rest best in my own home with the doors closed and the TV on and the world shut out. 
Francis Schaeffer, who uh, lived, was really a, what I would call a Christian prophet in the 70s, said there's two problems with America, and I think he's straight on. He said, number one, we have a strong desire for personal peace and a desire for affluence, accumulation of things. But it's the personal peace that typifies us. Personal peace means I really don't care what happens in the world, and I don't care what happens in my community or really even with my family because I want to be at peace. I want to be comfortable. Or if, if you, you know, don't like a philosopher, Paul Simon, who also had a song just like this, I am a rock, and a rock feels no pain, and an island never cries. If I'm a rock and an island, I don't have to feel pain, I don't have to cry, I'm just alone, shut off from the world. But God does not want me to perpetually live in a state of rest because he's active. Jesus in John 5 says he's always working. He's always working, moving to save a lost world, and he wants me to be active. Why? Because I'm his ambassador. If I am his ambassador, if I am going to be a person of risk, I must, like him, initiate. I must move. That's why I, we're going to use the next acronym, I is going to be initiate change. To become a person of risk, initiate change. God wants me to be a change agent in the world, not a rock and not an island. And I have to be honest with you, out of the four messages, this is the hardest one for me personally. Because I'm lazy. I just am. I like to sit. I like my iPad screen. I love it. Do you know that if you go surfing the net, as you look at a, as you look at a story, there will be all these pictures on the side that will have like really dumb headlines, like uh, the 50 most shocking historical pictures. And it says they are designed to elicit Chemical responses in your mind which cause you to touch that. Then you touch that one and you go to that and then I have another story over there. And you can get lost on the web for, for three hours without even knowing it. And uh, psychologists say it's because they trigger emotional responses of curiosity. I've got to see that. You can get lost in an iPad for, and your iPhone for hours. They're designed to make you sit at rest. So what we're going to do then is we're going to look at a very simple verse. Again, just like last week, we are Christ's ambassadors. This week we're going to go to 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. And also verse 19, which explains a little bit more. But it's, it's so simple that it's so dangerous. Because it, it is a verse that can rattle your complacency if you let it sink in. It's really dangerous. 1 John chapter 4, verse 11. Dear friends, so John's writing to his brothers and sisters in Christ. Dear friends, since God so loved us, the ESV will say, if God so loved us, he could say, because God so loved us, that's the thrust, we also ought to love one another. That's it. You can also elaborate it with verse 19. Verse 19 has the same thought, but it talks about his movement. 
We love, we love because he first loved us. It's the same idea that since we also ought. It's, it's so clear that it will cut to your heart because what it's doing, it's revealing God's heart. Look at the logic of it. Go to the next slide. Here's the heart of God. It begins by just saying the word since. And it's a, it's a statement of logical progression. If he loved, since he loved, and what word love means, he chose to initiate, pursue, pour out mercy, extend grace, he was the first to love us since he was. The natural result should be we also ought to initiate, show mercy, extend grace to others. If we are indeed Christ's ambassadors, we must act like Christ. Since Christ loved us, so must I love others. That's simple. I, I mean, really, it's simple. It's so simple that we don't like to think about it because it's, it's, so e it's not easy. It's so easy to understand. The title Christian actually means little Christ. So if somebody says, are you a Christian? If you reply, yes, I am, what you are saying, according to biblical vernacular, is I am a little Jesus. I am to look like him. I'll never be like him, but I'm to look like him. Believing always results in becoming. Philippians 3 says, Jesus took a hold of me, and I take a hold of him for the purpose he took a hold of me. Why did he take a hold of me? Because he wants to conform me into his image. So Paul says, I take a hold of Jesus who took a hold of me, so I take a hold of wanting to be conformed to his image because that's why he took me. Because when I'm conformed into his image, he is praised by the world. It's so strange this thing we're caught up into. And what is the main thing that characterizes Jesus? Love. A love that acts. Go to Luke chapter 10. I'll show you what I'm talking about. Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10 is a conversation that Jesus is having with an expert. An expert in Jewish law. And they're debating this guy knows the Mosaic law. So the man comes up to Jesus and he says, what, do I, what is required by God for me to have eternal life? That's what he asked Jesus. Jesus says, well, in verse 26, what does the law say? If you are an expert in the law, if you're an expert in Scripture, what do you think Scripture says? This guy said in verse 27, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus was actually, he normally gets upset at Pharisees, but he was like, you're right. Look at verse 28, you have answered correctly. And then he turns the tables and he says, do this and live. Well, this expert of the law you know, he wanted to be a little fancy. It says in verse 29, he wanted to justify himself. That means he wanted to sound pious. And so he continues the conversation, but he does something that's very dangerous. He asks Jesus a practical question. Not a theoretical question, a practical question. 
It's dangerous to ask Jesus practical questions. Like, what do you want me to do today? Should I love my neighbor? Um, uh, what do I do with my kid? Don't ask him those questions because he'll tell you he'll tell you what he wants you to do. So the guy says, so, acting very pious, so who is my neighbor? And this has led into probably one of the most popular stories Jesus has ever told. It's one that the first time you hear it, you'll never forget it. But it's one of those things when you apply it, it will crush you. It is the story of the Good Samaritan, starting in verse 30. Listen to what Jesus said. A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. And the reason why is Jerusalem is up on a, it's up on a hill 2,000 feet above sea level and it goes down to 800 feet below sea level. Jericho's below sea level. And so from going from Jerusalem down to Jericho, there's this highway that is rocky terrain and there's thieves and robbers on the side. So a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho when he fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him of his clothes and beat him. Went away and left him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the same road. And when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. So too a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, pass by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he traveled, came where the man was, and when he saw him, he took pity on him. He went to him and bandaged his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper. Look after him, he said, and when I return, I will reimburse you for any extra expense you may have. So Jesus asks the expert, which of these uh, three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of robbers? The expert in law replied, well, the one who had mercy on him. Jesus told him, then go and do likewise. Jesus' parable has a problem. And the problem with the priest and Levite isn't that they didn't see the man. If you notice, they saw the man. The problem is that they did nothing for the man. That's the problem. There's a lot of speculation. Why not? You know, commentators would say, well, they're, they're Pharisees. One's a Levite and one's a priest. So they're experts in the law, they are religious, and uh, probably they saw this man as a dead man. It says in the law not to touch a dead man because you'll be defiled, so it's a religious thing. Some other people said, well, it's probably because he wasn't a Jew and they were Jews and Jews don't associate with non-Jews because it defiles them. But really, that's not Christ's point. Christ's point is their problem is they didn't want to get involved. That's the problem. They did not want to get involved. So, what they did is they, chose, they intentionally chose not to see the need. And they moved past. They didn't want to be involved, so they didn't see the need. They saw the man, but they didn't see the need. But the Good Samaritan sees, if you look, it says in verse 33... He saw the man, and he took pity on the man. He sees with a different kind of eyes, eyes that include compassion. 
He feels the plight of the other. That's really what love does. Love puts itself in the place of the other and feels what they feel, which causes him to act. So to get involved, you must first see. So like, if you're walking down the road, do you see him? When you walk down your, your neighborhood, do you see him? Their, their house is built on seeing with compassion. That, to me, is the greatest example. They see people in the streets homeless, and they're moved to compassion. But here's the problem. Do you want to help? You can see him, but then you have to ask the next question. What will you do to help? I mean, um, when you look around your world, it takes different eyes to see. We usually see, last week I talked about cynicism. When you see with cynicism, you grow hard and you're distant. But when you see with compassion, it's a whole different thing. And it's hard to see like that because it will always cost you something. Getting involved in other people's lives always costs. It always does. The person who really loves is compelled to get involved and love will always initiate and pay the cost. I would say this is the reason most people don't get involved with other people's lives. It's why I don't sometimes. Because I know what it's going to cost. And so what happens is because I don't want to pay the cost, I don't see it. Because if I'm blind to the world, I don't need to get involved. If I'm blind to compassion, I don't have to care. So what most of us do is we put on a protective shell and pull away, and the couch becomes our favorite place, our place to hide. We turn on a screen, play our favorite app, surf Pinterest, read another chapter of our Danielle Steele book, turn on the football game, and once again become an object at rest. Because remember, an object at rest stays at rest. We often justify our decision of passivity by thinking everyone will be just fine without my involvement. The world will progress. It will get better and better. And the people I love don't need my interference. And my neighbor, he'd probably rather be left alone. So here I stand or here I sit, I will not be moved. All the while, when we sit in passivity, something is secretly applauding my passivity. Something's excited that I'm not being excited. Because my passivity gives it free reign and free movement. And it's always moving. And that something that's always moving is called sin and deceit. And I have to tell you, sin, where the Samaritan had a heart of compassion, sin's heart is pitiless. It could care less. Actually, it's cruel. The pitiless heart of sin. It's a parasite. Do you know sin is like a parasite? It's like a deadly cancer in the body that it never stops. And it keeps spreading. And in its spread, destruction and deceit are the are really the, what happens to people. I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 3. Hebrews chapter 3 and verse 13. The writer of the Hebrews is encouraging the church. He wants to exhort the church. And listen to what he's exhorting the church to. Verse 13. 
he says, encourage one another daily. That means every day encourage one another. Why? Well, as long as it's called today, so that none of you may be hardened by sin's deceit. We are to encourage one another to build each other up. Encouragement means breathing life into somebody. It's almost like into a balloon and it puffs up. Encouragement, not as pride, but as courage and confidence and strength and fortitude. It puffs you up. Why is that so important? Because sin is deceitful and it's always working to harden the heart. The writer William Newell asks, how does sin deceive? How does it deceive? His answer is with false peace. Because God's immediate judgment is withheld, the heart of man becomes set in doing evil. Ecclesiastes 8.11 puts it like this. When a sentence for a crime is not quickly carried out, the hearts of the people are filled with schemes to do wrong. And then, as people are passive, habits start being formed, hearts get hard, and God is dishonored. And I would say the long-term effects of being at rest are devastating. Because sin is no pity. It keeps moving, slithering its way into the heart's of those we love. If you think by doing nothing, nothing bad will take place, you're being played for a fool. As Edmund Burke has famously equipped, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. Because sin is always sneaking. It's always sneaking. Do you remember the very first murder in the Bible? Cain and Abel. Very first murder. Cain was jealous of Abel. Like really jealous. God came to Cain and he said, if you do what is right, you will, not, will you not be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching at the door. It desires to have you. If you do what is right, won't you be accepted? But if you do not do what is right, sin is crouching. It's crouching at the door. Desires to have you. The truth is, neutrality is a myth. You can do what is right or be at sin's mercy. Inactivity is sin's invitation. If you go back to the story of the Good Samaritan, think about the Good Samaritan a second. Besides the person who's lying in the road, how many other people are in that story? Normally, if I asked that question, I was thinking about it, you'd say the priest, the Levite, and a Good Samaritan. Three other people. Ah. But you have the robbers. But you don't really notice the robbers. In the same way, Satan is always robbing and thieving and lying and destroying, but you don't really notice him. He's kind of forgotten. The world is infested with Satan and his minions, attacking, killing, stealing. Satan is always prowling. So you can go ahead and stay as an object of rest, but remember, the objects that are currently in motion will continue to stay in motion. Mordor is always on the march. For Jared, that's for Jared, Lord of the Rings fan. Mordor is always advancing. But what can I do? Like when I think about this, what can I do? Well, first of all, I can get up off of that thing. That's the first thing I can do is, who, who sings that? Uh, a lot of those gospels, not gospel singers. Those. Forget it, Chris. Just keep going. I can first get up and then... 
I need to start taking risk because God has given into me through the Holy Spirit enormous, enormous potential for good. Enormous potential for good. I don't think we really understand this. Ask it like this. Why are you here on this earth? Why are you here on this earth at this moment in history? Why? Why are you here? To watch more movies. It's funny when I talk to people who say, Do you, know, you know what I really am good at? What's that? I really like movies. I really like movies. I'm thinking... Who, does, who doesn't? Like, you ever meet people like, I watch all of the adventure movies and I really like them. As if that's something to be... Everybody does. Is that why you're on the earth? Scripture says, I'm on the earth because God placed me here. Simple. God put me here. It's funny, yesterday I was at an um, ordination council. A guy in our area is, uh, is a youth pastor in a local church. And he's asked me to be in a council, and he gave his testimony, and he said, I was shy my whole life. I, I didn't talk to anybody. I really didn't. He said, I'd be perfectly content to go to college classes, sit in the back row, and put my books on the other seat so nobody would sit next to me. He goes, oh, I was a Christian. I worked hard. I just didn't talk to anybody. Then I dated this girl. I don't know why she dated me, because I was so shy. And the first thing she asked me, she's a Christian girl, she asked me this, what does God want you to do? And he said, that changed my life. So I started reading the Bible and I realized God wanted me to love people. That was one of the, if you meet this guy, he's just so blatantly honest. He said, I love to be introverted. But I read the Bible and I just couldn't get away with it. God wanted me to love people so I couldn't just sit there anymore. I want you to turn to one more passage of Scripture, Ephesians chapter 2. To me, it may be the most comprehensive chapter with the fewest number of verses of human meaning and purpose in the Bible. Only ten verses. I think it summarizes why you're here so perfectly. Just listen to how Paul writes this. And if you ever want to give the gospel, like you want to give the gospel in a succinct form, this is, this is it. It begins in verse 1 of chapter 2 of Ephesians. As for you, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. That's how, you, that's how we all start. Dead. In spirit. And in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work and those who are disobedient. The one behind the scenes. The one we easily forget. Satan's controlling you like a puppet master before you knew Christ. Verse 3, all of us, all of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. That means before Christ came, God's hot anger was pointed at me like an arrow at a deer in the woods. But because of his great love for us, but because of his love for us, since God so loved us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you've been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us up with Him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus. That means when you become a Christian, 
you become positionally his child and the heir to all of God's wealth. You sit with Christ when you're in Christ on his throne. You are placed from this object of wrath to a king or a queen. Is that a crazy story? That's our story. And it keeps going. Verse 7, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness in Christ Jesus. So you're like a trophy of his glory. Verse 8, for it is by grace you've been saved through faith. This isn't from yourself. It's a gift from God. Not by works. So no man can boast. For we are God's workmanship, creating Christ Jesus to do good works which God prepared in advance for us to do. Now, most people think the climax of this chapter, 1 through, one through 10, is verses 8 and 9. That's really what they pull out of it. That's where they stop. It is by grace you're saved. That's a great thing, but that's not the climax. The climax is verse 10. For we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God has prepared in advance for you to do. The climax is you are created to do good works. That's the glory. An object of wrath now doing the will of God? That's mind-blowing. That's, that's why you're here. God wants you to do good to repel the bad. He has recreated you in Christ Jesus to be light, to shine in this dark world. But if you don't shine the darkness will remain and grow. So maybe, just maybe, the reason the world is so dark is because Christians have decided to hide their light under a bushel. Maybe all of those bad headlines on TV, it's, we're partially to blame. So we started out with Newton's first law. An object at rest stays at rest. An object in motion stays in motion. The, the law doesn't just stop there, though. It says an object of rest, this will remain at rest as long as there's no unbalanced force. It goes like this. The same speed in the same direction, that means it will stay the same speed in the same direction unless it's acted upon an unbalanced force. That means this, if I go like this, an unbalanced force is acting upon that glass. That's stronger than the gravity from the table pushing up. Or the, the gravity of that and the table pushing up. This force is stronger and that's why it's moving. Unbalanced forces cause acceleration. If there is an unbalanced force, there will be movement. There will be change. You may feel that evil and darkness around you is too powerful, too prevalent. It's the unbalanced force. That's really not the strongest unbalanced force. The truth is, there is a stronger unbalanced force in the world, and this stronger unbalanced force lives inside of you. Greater is he that's in me than he that's in this world, 1 John 4, 4. I love how 2 Chronicles 16, 9 explains it. King Asa was this king that, man, there was the nations were around him, and he's scared to death of them, so instead of relying on God, he form this little peace treaty because he's scared and he really didn't trust that God would come through for him. And so the prophet Haniah rebuked the king and he said, you failed to rely on God's strength. If you had, listen to this verse. I love this verse. The eyes of the Lord are ranging throughout the earth. They're going everywhere throughout the earth 
to strengthen those whose hearts are fully committed to him. If you are committed to him and his will and you want to do his will, this unbalanced force that's in you called the Holy Spirit will start changing you and the world around you. It's greater. When you commit to God, he fights. He is the unbalanced, unstoppable force. So let me close like this. Look at it like this. God has placed you in a world right where he wants you to be, and he wants you to act upon it. Your world is like a blank canvas for the artist. An artist stands before the canvas, it's blank, and he looks at that canvas and sees what it can become with a new set of eyes. I took art class for two years in college, and for the first three weeks they taught me how to see. Not how to draw, but how to see. An artist doesn't begin by painting, he begins by seeing. Like the good Samaritan, he sees and then he acts. In the artist's case, after seeing, he then paints. In your case, your canvas could be a whole different number of things. Maybe if you're a mom, it's in your home with your children. Are you proactive or is evil lurking and all you do is complain about it, waiting for your child to be a terrible two or a horrible teenager, always wondering if Satan's going to destroy him? Or are you proactive saying, I have incredible opportunities to form character in my kids? Or do I let their friends form their character and an unfriendly media on their iPad form their character? It's up to you. They're your canvas. Some of you, your canvas is your workplace. It's where you work. Do you work hard so you'll beautify the place you work to help your company expand and grow? Or do you add darkness through criticism and complaint just wanting to get out of there for the weekend? Are you a good employee or are you a whiner? It's your canvas. Your canvas could be your neighborhood. Can you make it a great place to live or do you hole up in your house, lock your doors, never meet anybody? Your canvas could be your community. Your kid's sports team. Maybe they don't have a coach. Why don't you just coach or help out and get to know all of these families? It's amazing the opportunities you can have on sports because we worship sports. And if you go and just care about kids, the parents of those kids will, they will notice you because most coaches are mean and they just want to win. There's very rarely do you have a coach that just loves the kids for who they are. One time I had this kid, I coached soccer. I'm not a soccer coach. This isn't to, to boast. This kid could not play soccer. He was really bad. I mean, he was really bad. But I told him, I said, if you try, I will give you a Pokemon card every time you try out on the soccer field. And the, one, the next day he shows up, he runs like a, a chicken with his head cut off. The kid was trying. He didn't know what he's doing. He couldn't kick the ball because he wasn't coordinated. But he tried, and I gave him a few Pokemon cards. He goes, whoa. And his mom comes up to me at the end of the year and goes, my son loves soccer. He's terrible, but he loves it. Thank you. Thank you. I think you can do that kind of stuff. I mean, there's a canvas everywhere. Your canvas is different than anybody else's, but it's where God has placed you to act, to love people, and to have eyes to see. Isaiah 50 says, the Sovereign Lord wakens me morning by morning as one being taught to know the word that will sustain the weary. Who's weary around you? Man, everywhere. What does God want you to do? You know it and do it. Or is the couch too comfortable? 
There's a, there's a little illustration of always like this. You might have heard it, but this is how it will end. While walking along a beach, an elderly gentleman saw someone in the distance, leaning down, picking something up, and throwing it into the ocean. As he got closer, he noticed that the figure was that of a young man picking up starfish one by one and tossing each one gently back into the water. He came closer still and called out, Good morning, may I ask what that is you are doing? The young man paused, looked up, and replied, throwing starfish in the ocean. The old man smiled and said, I must ask then, why are you throwing starfish into the ocean? To this, the young man replied, the sun is up and the tide is going out. If I don't throw them in, they'll die. Upon hearing this, the elderly observer commented, but young man, do you not realize that there are miles and miles of beach and there are starfish all along every mile? You can't possibly make a difference. The young man listened politely, bent down, picked up another starfish, threw it back into the ocean, past the breaking waves, and said, I made a difference for that one. Let's pray. Father, help us to make a difference with one or two or maybe three people. I've made a difference with that one. If it's our own family, help us to make a difference. If it's somebody that sits next to me in class, help me to make a difference. If it's maybe on a larger scale where you've broken my heart, help me, help all of us to make a difference and to initiate change. We love you, God. It's in Christ's name we pray.